And welcome to Passion Week. Uh, This is the highlight of the Christian calendar, beginning today with Palm Sunday and concluding next Sunday with Resurrection Sunday or Easter. Uh, This is the week that changed everything, right? This is the week that brought hope to sinners like you and me. This is a week of sorrow and joy, of pain and betrayal, of death and life. And it all happens because of one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God, our Savior. So enjoy this week. Christians, take extra time this week to meditate in the Word and in prayer. Take advantage. Uh, We have several devotional books out at the Information Center on the far table, I believe. Uh, There's some for kids, there's some for families, more theological, more devotional, uh, that deal just with this week, just with this period, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take advantage of some of those devotional books. This is the good news. Does anybody need some? Good news, right? Uh, Even Christians, we need to preach the good news to ourselves. We're continuing this morning in our study uh, through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, We're in a larger section from chapter 12 through chapter 14 where Paul is dealing with spiritual gifts. Uh, Those are special, divinely given, divinely empowered gifts to believers through the Holy Spirit uh, that God uses to build up the church. The Corinthians were not doing a great job of this, uh, primarily because they're boasting about which gifts they had and comparing and dividing over them, which is the very opposite of what the gifts are supposed to do, build up the church. And Paul wants to correct that. So in chapter 12, he rehearsed the importance of understanding how the church is the body of Christ. You remember that? Every member of that body has an essential role. No one is unimportant, and all must work together. If one isn't functioning properly, it affects the whole body. That's why when we talk from the pulpit on a Sunday morning about uh, a fellow named Greg Sethman, whom some of you sitting here may not even know, but he's a member of this church, He's a brother who's suffering. And as a member of this body, it affects all of us. When we mention our sister Thelma Myers, who's here this morning, and the loss of her husband, and uh, the, the funeral and the burial that we did this week, and we ask you to pray for her because she is grieving. She is a member of this body, and it affects all of us, every one of us should help to bear that burden. So Paul really drills down there in chapter 12 about the importance of this. Everyone is important. All must work together. If one member isn't functioning properly, it affects the whole body. Then in chapter 13, which we've been in the last three weeks, Paul teaches us how love is It's the essential and missing ingredient in the Corinthians' exercise of spiritual gifts. In fact, without love, Paul says their gifts were meaningless, useless, a big fat zero. 
Then Paul taught us what true love looks like, which Pastor Ochin shared with us last week from verses 4 through 7. So now that Paul has defined this amazing love, all those characteristics we saw last week, the point of this last section in 1 Corinthians 13 is again to connect love with the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians are valuing too much and dividing over. And the simple message of these verses is found right at the beginning of verse 8. Look at it. Love never ends. Say that with me. Love never ends. Paul's going to give some illustrations. He's going to give some explanation. But the main point is, say it again, love never ends. These verses that we'll look at today have often been focused on in controversial ways with regard to the meaning of verse 8 and the meaning of verse 10. And we'll get to that. But don't lose the primary emphasis that Paul wants the Corinthians and us to get, which is love never ends. I'm going to briefly deal with the cessation of these what we call sometimes spectacular gifts and the meaning of what the perfect is in verse 10. But that's not the primary message of this text. You know what that is, right? Love never ends. Only one of these things mentioned in this text makes Christians truly distinct from the world. Only one thing helps us to stand out in the right way. Only one characteristic associates us with the eternal, with heaven, with God. And that one thing is love. Because love never ends. So let's break these verses down. You already know the main idea, right? So let's take a look at the truth. Two truths. First of all, some things pass away. Verses 8 through 12. Some things pass away. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The first illustration that Paul uses is the prominent spectacular gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. He's using this illustration in contrast to his main point about love, which is love never ends. So unlike love, these gifts do have an end. The text says they will pass away, they will cease, it will pass away. What you need to know about this verse is that the phrase pass away is used by the Apostle Paul almost exclusively in his letter in referring to the future time when Jesus returns. In theology, we call that the doctrine of eschatology or last times. Paul uses pass away to talk about things that will not survive the transition from this age to the age to come. He uses it this way in five different chapters in 1 Corinthians, including 
twice in this one, in verses 8 and 10. We'll get to verse 10 shortly because this is all, is all necessary to understand in order to, to, to figure this out. But the question that everybody always jumps to in verse 8 is, okay, so when do these gifts cease? The charismatics say that they are still going on right now, today. Some of them say that a true believer must experience speaking in tongues in order to be rightly related to the Holy Spirit. Others, like this church, says that these gifts have already ceased. Who is correct? Well, we are, of course. (laughs) The truth is, this passage of Scripture doesn't make the timing of the ceasing perfectly clear to us. All we know for sure is that they will cease, spiritual gifts will cease when the perfect comes. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But in case we don't get back to this subject, let me share briefly why we insist as a church family that these gifts, these spectacular gifts, have indeed ceased. And I just wanted just to build a little argument for you, just if you're taking notes, and then we'll move on. Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church is built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. These were the people that God used to give us all that we need to know for salvation and Christian living. Their teachings were written down and comprised the New Testament, the Scripture that we now hold in our hands. We are not now looking for any new revelation from God. We believe the Scripture is complete. Revelation points that out very clearly, doesn't it? Instead, what the Bible does tell us to do is to contend for the faith, the body of teaching that's been passed down to us, that was delivered to the saints Once for all, that's what Jude verse 3 says. This body of faith is delivered to the saints once for all through these apostles and prophets. In other words, we don't have apostles like Paul and Peter and John anymore. They gave us the only teaching that we will need until Jesus returns. We know that new apostles won't show up because Paul tells us that he was the last apostle. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8. And and another thing, when James died, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, he wasn't replaced like Judas was at the beginning, remember? So if anyone claims to be an apostle today, and there are many churches who still use those titles... We should be concerned and be watching out for false teaching and abuse of authority. The apostles have passed away. So think about this with me. If the gift of apostles, and and Paul says in Ephesians 4 that apostles are one of the gifts given to the church. So if if the gift of apostles has ended, it's possible, isn't it, that other gifts has ceased as well. In fact, if we use the same logic as we did for the apostles, the gift of prophecy 
has also ended. The early churches didn't have the complete canon of Scripture, all 66 books like we do today. And they weren't going to have that for some time yet when, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And so a prophetic ministry was needed to lay the foundation, like Paul says in Ephesians, for the church in those early days. 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5, and also Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18, suggest that interpreted tongues, okay, so speaking in tongues that are interpreted, by the way, they're required to be interpreted, also according to 1 Corinthians 14, interpreted tongues are the same as prophecy. So if prophecy is passed away, then tongues have likely ended as well. And certainly the way that tongues, quote-unquote, are practiced in today's charismatic churches does not at all look like the way the Bible describes it, as we'll see when we get into 1 Corinthians 14. We do not see true tongues being practiced in the early church after the first century. And there's a lot of historical record by church fathers in the first, second, third, fourth centuries that don't describe anything like this in the church. The apostles, the prophets, the foundation of the church have passed off the scene with the first century. And many of those spectacular gifts that the Lord used for laying the foundation for our faith in the new, what would become the New Testament is concluded. So just because we believe that some of these more spectacular spiritual gifts have ceased, have gone away, does not mean that all spiritual gifts have ceased. In fact, most of the spiritual gifts are still active and will be until Jesus comes. Now, that may raise more questions in your mind, and we'll likely answer them when we get to chapter 14. So just hang on. But the timing of the stopping, the ceasing of these gifts, is not the big idea of this passage. What is it? Love never ends. That's the big idea. But spiritual gifts do end. And I would say to you this morning, some already have. Look at the next verses. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In verses 9 and 10, we see some explanation The verse starts with the word for, which is what Paul uses very often, in fact, the whole New Testament uses, to signal something's being explained. It could also be translated because or since. Paul says there is something that is partial and there's something that is perfect or complete. It's the Greek word teleon. It means complete. The partial is the spiritual gifts. The perfect, I would submit to you, is the return of Christ. Now, let's look at the next illustration and next explanation in verses 11 and 12 because we need them too to understand this whole idea. And then we'll, I'll try to put it all together for you. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. Reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. That's the illustration. 
For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So verse 11 gives us the second illustration. It's another contrast, this time not between love and spiritual gifts. Now it's a contrast between Paul's childhood and his adulthood. See that? Verse 12 then gives us the second explanation. You see the word for again at the beginning of uh, verse 12? There is a mirror that we can see dimly in. The word dimly can also mean distorted or blurry. It's a reflection. We're seeing something reflected back to us, but it's not clear. In contrast to what the verse says, face to face. And then there's one final contrast at the end of verse 12. He talks about partial knowledge that we have now and full knowledge that we'll have then. Okay, let's try to put this all together. Follow me. The passing away in verse 8 goes with the partial in verses 9 and 10, goes with the child of verse 11, goes with the blurry mirror and partial knowledge of verse 12. You see that? All those things are talking about the same idea. Then the perfect in verse 10 goes along with the adult man in verse 11 and the face-to-face and the full knowledge of verse 12. Do you see that? So the question we we have to answer is, what is this perfect thing that comes along and changes everything. It transforms our knowledge. It transforms our maturity. There are two main options that people think about. That's why this is controversial, because there's more than one option. (coughs) The first option, and it's a very popular option, is that the perfect thing represent here is the completion of the Bible. So when the Bible is complete, then prophecies and knowledge and tongues will stop. Now, that is something that makes an awful lot of sense. It sounds very plausible, right? After all, I'm putting forth the idea here that they did indeed stop as the Bible was finished. But I think the second option is actually the right one. And the second option is that the perfect thing, the complete thing, is the return of Jesus Christ. And I want to I give you several reasons for that. First of all, remember the pass away language um, back in verse uh, 8. And I'll add the now and then language of verse 12 as well. These are Paul's ways of describing this age and the age to come, which of course begins when Jesus comes back. That's what we're waiting for. That's what kicks off the whole next part of the future of prophecy is Jesus coming back. Second, the phrase in verse 12, and this is one of the things that really kind of cemented it for me. The phrase in verse 12, face to face, it's a very unique phrase, especially in the Old Testament. In in the New Testament, Paul uses it a couple of times to refer to himself, like, 
He's been away from the church. He looks forward to seeing them when they can be face-to-face again. Right? We understand that. He's talking about it in personal terms. But here, I think Paul's using it like it's used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because, you know, the the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right? So the New Testament is written in Greek. So we've got a Greek word here for face-to-face. But the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We've talked about this before, right? It's called the Septuagint. This was the Old Testament that Jesus and his disciples knew and read and memorized when they were on earth. The Greek language is what was spoken primarily. Face-to-face in the Old Testament is used almost exclusively to refer to appearances of God to people. We call those theophanies, appearances of God in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 32, Jacob, do you remember, wrestles all night with the angel of the Lord, which most of us believe the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is code word for Jesus, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, whenever you see the angel of the Lord. Uh, Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord, and he says in Genesis 32 that he has seen God face to face. Also, um, Moses in in Exodus chapter 33 is on the mountain, Mount Sinai, with God. He, he, He describes that experience later in Numbers chapter 14. By the way, we're starting... Numbers, uh, the Bible study in the book of Numbers tonight, uh, starting chapter 1, verse 1, here at 6 o'clock. So come and join us if you want to study Numbers with us, starting tonight at 6 o'clock. Numbers 14, it's described. And Deuteronomy chapter 5, it describes Moses being face-to-face with God on the mountain. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon, again, has an appearance of the angel of the Lord and describes it as a face-to-face encounter. When we put this together, the best interpretation I see is that Paul is talking about the future appearing of Jesus Christ. That's what he means by when the perfect has come. At which time, as, as John wrote in his epistle, 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him, for we shall see him As he is, face to face, at that moment, we are changed. We are, we become like Jesus. The the, the word that we use in theology is we are glorified. That happens when Jesus appears. We will know Jesus as he has always known us, as Paul describes here, even as we are known. We will grow up finally. We will be fully mature. We will be the man that Paul is using here as an illustration, spiritually speaking. And we won't need spiritual gifts anymore because we'll see the giver of the spiritual gifts face to face. Isn't that wonderful? That's what happens at the return of Jesus Christ. So when it comes to the Christian life, some things pass away. Things like, Prophecies, knowledge, and tongues. 
They were extremely helpful in the early days of the church for getting us all of the information that God wanted us to have, which has been written down and preserved for us in His Word. But I would suggest to you that they've already begun to pass away. And all the gifts will pass away when Jesus returns. There are some things that pass away. But secondly, there are some things that endure forever. Look at verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. I'll be quick here. The gifts pass away. But three things endure, according to Paul. Faith, hope, and love. They all endure into the next age. Past Jesus' coming into the new heavens and the new earth. Wonderful, right? But there's a question that arises. Why is love the greatest? Think through this with me. There is a sense in which faith and hope endure too, right? Paul, Paul, and, and there's also a sense in which faith and hope change when Jesus comes back, right? Our faith becomes sight. Our hope becomes reality. We're no longer believing and hoping in something that we can't see, something that isn't realized, because when Jesus comes back, it is realized. But there's also a sense in which faith and hope endure. Paul writes later in chapter 15, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. If there's only hope for Jesus in this life, but not in the next, we should be pitied. That suggests, doesn't it, that there's some aspect of hope that continues on. And certainly, um, part of faith is not only what we trusting in what we can't see, but also just the whole idea of trusting and believing which is something that we'll continue to do all through eternity. Did you notice that Paul had already used faith and hope in this chapter? Look down at verse 2, and then notice verse 7. In verse 2, Paul could not imagine having faith without love. See it? In verse 7, hope is one of the many, many colors that Paul uses to put love on display. To define it. So, you see, both hope and faith are in a sense secondary to love. They're dependent on love. They're descriptive of love. But love, as Paul says, is supreme. It's the greatest. Two centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards asked, what makes the church like heaven? His answer, it is love. It is what the world 
must see. It must see us act when we have brothers and sisters in need. Love empathizes with those who weep and mourn and suffer. Love cooks food, provides meals, cleans houses, visits the sick, makes phone calls, sends cards of encouragement. Love prays for those who are in need, gives money to the deacon fund, which we'll collect at the end of the service, to help those in dire straits. Love places the interest of others above itself. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit. And according to Paul, any discussion, any healthy discussion, any biblical discussion of spiritual gifts should conclude that God gives these gifts to enable us to love one another. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front for our next songs. I'll ask the leadership team if they would prepare to come to serve at the Lord's table. As they're coming, just a couple final thoughts. Aren't you glad the text doesn't say, love passes away? (laughs) Aren't you glad it says, love never ends? As I've studied this passage this week, my mind kept coming back to the fact that the return of Jesus is highlighted here as the time that we are changed, the time when we are grown up, the time when we are finally glorified. And one thought I had was that it truly is love that keeps bringing Jesus back to his own. It was love that motivated God to send his son to Bethlehem. And I would suggest, from this text at least, that it is love that brings him back again in the future so that we can finally know him as he knows us. Isn't that love? To take us to the place that he has prepared for us. Isn't that love? To free us finally from the very presence of sin in our flesh. Isn't that love? To see him face to face like Roger does right now. Isn't that love? Brothers and sisters, the whole Bible is a love story about your heavenly Father who loved you and His Son who loved you and His Spirit who loves you and who helped you begin to love God and to love others as we were created to. This theme of love never ending, it is not some random theme stuck in the middle of spiritual gifts discussion in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. This theme of love never ending, God has always wanted you to know this truth. It is throughout the Bible. Listen to these precious verses. 1 Chronicles 16.34 says this for the first time, and it's repeated dozens of times in the Old Testament. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 52.8, I trust in the steadfast love of God. 
forever and ever. Psalm 89.1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 118, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. There it is again. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. And brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 136 or read it recently, but every single verse ends with His steadfast love endures forever. Every verse in Psalm 136. Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is no new truth, friends. It is an everlasting truth. And once God has set His love on you and opened your eyes and saved you, there is nothing that can separate you from it. We know those verses in Romans 8, don't we? Romans 8, 38. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Do you remember two of the things it says in that list? Not things present, nor things to come. Not this era or the next era after Jesus returns. Love will never be separated from us. Love transcends all times, all eras. It never ends. We can praise God for that, can't we? Let's do that right now. Let's stand and sing about this relationship of love between us and our Savior, and then we'll come to the table. Let's stand.